This is the only Sunday in the Christian year that commemorates a doctrine. Usually uh, commemorations are about the saints of God or about the life of Jesus uh, and uh, not about theological outlooks. But Trinity Sunday is the Sunday when we talk about the Trinity. Uh, some preachers dread Trinity Sunday because it's hard not to start talking about the Trinity and to get yourself into some hot water immediately. But the purpose of my sermon this morning is to say some things to you about the origin of the Trinity and more to the point why I think the doctrine of the Trinity matters and why we have a whole Sunday dedicated to uh, the Holy Trinity. Where did we get this from the great tradition with a capital T? Remember, Episcopalians believe that their source of authority has three places that we appeal to. The Bible, the great tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And so the doctrine of the Trinity in some ways flows out of that. But you also hear me say often that we have a maxim in the Episcopal Church, in the Anglican Church, from ancient times, and that is the law of prayer is the law of belief. So the worship of the church is prior to all of the theological pronouncements of what, what we believe to be true about God, Jesus, the world, the sacraments, uh, morals and ethics, all of those things we understand that the worship of the church in some way informed the early Christians and their experience and began to make connections for them with regard to how they thought about the deep things of Christian faith and belief and began to write them down. Alan Jones, in his recent book, Common Prayer on Common Ground, a vision of Anglican Orthodoxy, says the holy and undivided trinity tells us that God is with us, God loves us, and God calls us without exception into communion. So what he's saying there is that in some ways that's the starting point. In another one of his recent books he said, you know, Episcopalians have always tended to emphasize the importance of belonging before believing. And what that means is that what I'm going to say this morning about the Trinity is what I'm going to say about it. But you and I don't have to believe all of the abstruse writing and talking about the Holy Trinity in toto before we become part of the life of the church and begin to make a difference in the world learning how to be God's people in the world, empowered by and sustained by the sacramental life of the church, our baptism, and then the continuous nurture of the spiritual food and drink of the most holy sacrament of the altar. So don't think that it's necessary for you to believe everything about the Trinity. What I am going to do is give you a commercial message for the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity and to tell you that even though if it were to disappear from the panoply of the church's theological outlook tomorrow at 8 a.m. it would not be missed. 
by a lot of people. And yet it is absolutely at the heart of our self-understanding. So with that kind of both and, let's talk a little bit about where this all came from. You know, the desire by the early Christians, even those who believed they needed to write in rather um, abstruse and lengthy ways about the deep things of Christian faith and belief, flowed out of their common experience and also of, out of their need to explain to those who did not believe or to those who had differing views about what they thought through their own experience was true about God's action in the world. So speaking about God as Trinity flowed out of the common life of the church. Remember, I've said this to you before as well. The church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. And so while the holy scriptures have a central place in our common life, they flowed from the common life of the church, the early Christians who met together, who wanted to be faithful people in the world, who wished to witness in some way to the power of God's work in their lives, to be the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that they were called to be. So the Trinity was something they began to look and see how it was that we might describe God in this way. Let me read to you a quotation from a well-known Anglican theologian. He's not one that I quote very often, but in this particular case, uh, what he says is useful. Dr. John Stott, who for many years was the rector of All Souls Church Langham Place in London, and in the old churchmanship days, we would refer to All Souls Langham Place as Snake Belly Low. So Dr. Stott comes out of the uh, very evangelical side of the Church of England. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity is not a peculiar theory invented by unpractical theologians. It is an attempt to put into words a truth that God revealed in the facts of history. The apostles were Jews who had been brought up to believe in God the creator of the world and the Holy One of Israel. Then they met Jesus, and as they lived with him, they came to realize that he was no mere man. He was divine, yet he was not himself not the Father, for he used to pray to the Father. Then he started telling them of someone else who he called the Spirit of Truth and the Comforter, who would come and take his place when he had gone. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did come with the fullness of divine power. So it was the pressure of their own experience that forced the apostles to believe in the Trinity. In other words, their personal experience experienced God as Trinity. And by virtue of that, they began to say to themselves, you know, I begin to look and understand myself as a human being 
in a Trinitarian way, in my emotional, mental, spiritual, physical states, something about me has a threefold character. And if Paul is right in Romans today, what Jesus Christ is by nature, we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. And so there is this idea now of the participation of the individual Christian person in the life of God. And it operates in two ways, as a done deal, but also as a continuous invitation to each of us to live into the promises of God. So through our baptism, we begin to say, you know, I have this relationship. I have received some virtues by, vir by virtue of my baptism of faith, hope, and love, and that I am able now with greater ease to reflect these virtues to the world. More to the point, I begin to understand in some ways that the life of God as Trinity has some connection to my own life because God understood as Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development is something that resonates with my own circumstances. We have seen in this man's words and in this man's works, words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And more to the point, we have seen not some tableau played out before us in the person of Jesus Christ, some figure who is like a pointillist painting where you can put your hand through him, but a real human being who gives us and gave us tools that we can use about how to be God's people in the world. So the idea of Trinity becomes now extremely useful. I told this story at 9 o'clock when I was first becoming an Episcopalian. I had the privilege uh, to meet the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey. He was a great friend of the rector of the parish that I became an Episcopalian out of, St. Matthew's San Mateo. And uh, Bishop, Archbishop Ramsey was in San Francisco and was uh, scheduled to preach at Grace Cathedral. This was during the time when Bishop James Albert Pike was the Bishop of California, who was a very controversial figure in the Episcopal Church in the mid to late 60s. And Bishop Pike was at Grace Cathedral. And in the old arrangement in those days, Bishop Pike was sitting in the Episcopal throne that was some ways back from the pulpit in the very back of the of the uh, chancel, and he was sitting in the old Episcopal throne that had been donated to, to uh, Grace Cathedral by the Redwood Association of America. It was the most ugly Episcopal throne you had ever laid your eyes on, and now occupies a place over on the side near the Chapel of Grace. So the Archbishop was preaching his sermon. And at one point in the sermon, he said to the congregation, and after all, the Holy Trinity is not an embarrassment to Christianity, and turned 
and looks straight back at Bishop Pike. Have you ever seen anybody get small in their body? When, you know? It was, an, it was a moment. I actually loved it, I have to say, because I agree with Bishop Ramsey. It's not an embarrassment. You don't need to believe every abstruse aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity to understand that it flows out of the common life of the Christian church who began to see that the truth of the Trinity could be connected to the truth of our own self-understanding. I have a memory, a reason, and a will. I have a Trinitarian character in my own life, and it is understanding this that gives me the capacity to be able to mature in the spirit. How would we understand that to be made manifest in our everyday living? Well, you heard me during the great 50 days of Easter say that Father Thomas Keating in his wonderful book, The Mystery of Christ, the liturgy as spiritual experience, that every time we come to Mass, we encounter three important theological ideas. The light of God, the life of God, and the love of God. And those in themselves have a Trinitarian character, don't they? God's light is the wisdom of God that shows us internally how to proceed. It is the practical wisdom that we acquire in relationship. It becomes the ability that we cultivate to share the practical wisdom that we have with other people and the corrigibility internally to be able to listen to the practical wisdom from other people and to learn stuff so that we know something about how to be a better human being. So God's illuminative processes don't operate just on a religious level. They operate on the level of you becoming a mature and a sensible human being, developing the internal self-regulation that you need to rise to the demands and the opportunities that are in front of you on a regular basis, to find the strength and the ability to regulate your instinctual drives. That flows then into the second aspect that we encounter in the liturgy, which is God's life, and that is the empowerment we receive through our baptism and the ability to understand more clearly how we be God's people in the world. And we are empowered also as Episcopalians by our belief in the power of the sacramental life, most particularly in holy baptism, and in the Holy Eucharist, where we continuously receive the food of life that empowers and strengthens us to be God's people in the world. And finally, God's love is the ability to be transformed. So each of you know that if we're open to it, we can become different people. We can do things about who we are that make us more responsive to the divine initiative begun in us at our baptism. We touch our true self. We understand more clearly that it is God's love unconditional, God's acceptance unconditional, and God's forgiveness unconditional that allows us 
to be who we truly are. So early Christians, when they started to think about how God operates, began to say to themselves, you know, there is this threefold character to uh, the way God works in the world, and I can feel it myself internally in my spiritual states. So perhaps the lesson that we take with us this week is that it's, oh, it is more important for us to belong than to believe. And that if we wish to, to act from time to time as missionaries, to commend to other people our greatest place of safety and assurance, we can say that. You know, all of us have been invited by the Savior to go on the way to follow him. And that presumes that we're engaged in some kind of a process. The process of belonging now can lead to believing. There are a lot of Episcopalians in our day and time who believe that believing is important first. So we will give you a checklist of our own devising that you now can read and check the boxes. And if you check them, then you belong. Okay? We say you got to belong and then you come to believe, as it says in John's Gospel. You come to believe. Remember that the processes of God are always at work in you. So belonging and believing. Look this week in terms of in your own life and in your own character and in your own personal history and see if you can locate any of the times the Trinitarian aspect of your character was present to you in one form or another. You know, in theology, when you talk about the Holy Spirit, or you talk about God the Father, or you talk about God the Son, that's for the purposes of the conversation. But technically, it's all God. So when you're thinking about Jesus, you're thinking about God and the Holy Spirit. And when you're thinking about the Holy Spirit's presence, you're thinking about God and you're thinking about Jesus. It's a unity. We believe that the internal nature of God is a community. The Greek word for that, maybe you've heard it, is koinonia. Koinonia means community. It means fellowship. And it also means communion. It means that the Godhead is always in sync, firing on all eights. So when I ask you to look at your own experience and see the Trinitarian character of your life, Look back at the times when you were firing on all eights internally. You had your personal demons at bay. You were able to rise to the uh, challenges and demands that were in front of you. You were a little less anxious than you normally are. And somehow you were able to bring greater health and wholeness to your relationships. Amen.